0: Today, we're talking to Tim from PagerDuty about driving the conversation to further your career. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. I'm in year eight at PagerDuty. You're in year eight at PagerDuty. Yeah, I got here uh, beginning of April of 2015.
1: Oh, but you just became CTO in the past seven CTO months. CTO
0: became a little bit of the, like the title shift uh, to it. an extent. But I got here. We were, I think we just raised B round money. So I think we uh, crossed over about twenty million in revenue, about sixty or seventy people total. And then the founders were, were kind enough to uh, hire me as a as their VP of engineering. And I give them a a lot of credit because it's not easy to hand over part of your baby, especially as technical founders, to someone from the outside. And uh, you know, I was a past user and buyer of PagerDuty, So I understood it quite well. And I've seen world I had seen worlds where without PagerDuty, duty, how painful things can be and how much better they are with pager duty. So I was already a believer. Uh, so it was a very easy call for me to take uh, from from the recruiter at the time.
1: How did the title shift play out? Because you know we have our responsibilities and they change. I obviously I looked yep. at LinkedIn and you've had a number of roles, sure, at sure, Azure sure, Duty over the couple of years. But how did it specifically go from you not being the CTO to realizing your title is CTO? How did that transpire? Yeah, it was
0: it was a long running conversation um, with myself, um, our CEO, uh, Jen Tejada. Um Part of the shift that we both felt was was necessary was was twofold. One is we have a, we've had a fantastic chief product officer like my partner in crime uh, that joined us a couple of years ago, Sean Scott, and he brings an immense amount of experience from from Amazon as being most, most recent, he's been, he was there for about 15 years, but um, just, just really great breadth and depth of experience overall. And, um, you know, we started to talk, look for opportunities where, you know, where, where are there gaps in terms of coverage? And and that's what it really came out to. And then where's, where are we going to find some new leverage for the company? And instead of, you know, in terms of like the, you know, there's VP of engineering, I was SVP of engineering with, with some broader responsibility. For about a year and a half, I ran both uh, product management and engineering, soup to nuts, at PagerDuty. the second time I did that in my career. Very humbling, very sobering in a lot of ways to do that job at the same time. And we felt there was a really good opportunity to help streamline things for just honestly for for better productivity, better execution, better delivery for our customers, while at the same time having a um, bit more of a focused outlook on a little bit more into the future. So for example, you know, typically, you know, companies, big, small or medium size, we always struggle with, uh, you know, the urgent and the important work. Urgency usually shows up and it kind of takes top of mind, top of day, and it's about, okay, today I have to do this, this week I got to do that. But as your business is growing, well, what needs to be true a year from now to support the business? What needs to be true three years from now, knowing that you're going to have a certain growth clip and or um, just general, um, you know, maybe a running out of the business as a whole, which is a position Pager's been in for a number of years going from just single product offering into more of an integrated platform offering with a portfolio of products that can work seamlessly together or work individually. And so we've been talking a lot about like what what all needs to be done almost under the hood to retrofit that to be true in two three years time as the business continues to grow as the business broadens out to various markets various geographies etc so a lot of the shift has come into play with respect to um part strategy and part execution a little more focus on the strategy side at the end of the day especially on software and systems architecture um uh Security and risk management is always top of mind, hot topic always. And then I tend to lean in pretty heavily to the, to the business side as well, um, spend a lot of time with customers, with industry, um, very close to our corporate strategy, uh, mergers and acquisitions, and some of that fun stuff that typically happens behind the scenes.
1: So I want to know, I want you to think about like the day you went on LinkedIn and updated it to CTO role. Because here's why, I'll give you some background. Sure, sure people that listen to this show often are leaders who are trying to grow. And yeah. often the CTO is one of the highest ranking positions in technology totally. that you can have. And so everybody's always asking, how do you become a CTO? How do you become a CTO? And then I see you go through this nice seven, eight year progression, sure. ultimately ending up at CTO in the past seven months. How does it actually happen?
0: Good question. I mean, I could tell you that that day when I went to a update on LinkedIn Right. Um, yeah, you know, I yeah, super proud. I mean it it has a certain amount of meaning, a little bit of gravitas out out in the wild, but I didn't necessarily view it as like a promotion all in. It was more of a of a shift of of a responsibility set, the focus area in terms of what can be most impactful to the company. Now how how to get there, I, I do think it's it's a lot of it's a lot of grit, a lot of grind. Um I, I think there's nobody's gonna hand it to you in that re- respect you really got to go go get it and a lot of it ends up um showing up in ways of like what are the gaps that need to be filled what what is the job that someone else isn't doing um i think that is a big a component of uh, in in uh, in businesses to be able to rise up the ranks right demonstrate that you can actually take on more you can be more impactful it's not about let's say doing more in terms of activity it's like old adages like how do we make engineers more productive well, it's not about getting them type faster on the keyboard and have something render on the screen quicker, right? It's like how can we enable them, enable all of us to work smarter, more effectively, and create more impact. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of like owning it, and stating goals. Like one of my goals, I was very, pretty open about with with a lot of our our team at Pageu is like I had this ambition and goal to to be a public company CTO. Part of it is because I I think it feels like there's this achievement part of it. Uh, but also around, you know, what is it that I can continue to be doing at a certain kind of scale factor with an influence factor that, you know, in heart of all hearts is is really beneficial. And, you know, I think you get to a point in your career where it's less about, you know, the, the title, so to speak, but more around like, well, where and how are you spending your time and where? I think that in terms of like, what company do you represent? What brand do you represent? What products? What, what solutions? What things do you represent? start to go a long way um and i do think pedro has been in this role of doing really good stuff to create like a positive dent in the universe and yep that if i can help represent that at a at a certain level then oh my god i've I feel like i have a this is amazing now what now go now continue to do it <laughs> better faster more efficiently seems to be the the mantra of the day
1: So as your responsibilities and focus area shifted, you noticed this gap, you went to go fill the Mm -hmm. gap. Did you go to the board, to the CEO, and did you sort of soft shop it around the idea or did you go and did you ask for it or did they come to you and tell you that's what you're now? No, I I definitely soft soft shopped it, but I
0: definitely um, started and drove the conversation with, with our CEO. It had been a bit of a longer running set of thematics between me and her and parts of our team. And, you know, earlier, almost like a year ago, I I did sit down with her and say, here's where my thoughts are. And then we were in the office together so I could whiteboard and and paint a bit of a picture that was a build and almost like a refinement of a lot of thoughts and ideas she was already pushing my way. Right. And I I give her a lot of credit to help open up my my aperture a little bit um, versus just like inside the factory, so to speak. But I did. I did drive the conversation. I and I then started to shop around with peers because I, you never do this alone. You need partners. You need. You need. Um. You need help. Every person needs some help. So, you know, talking with our chief product officer, talking with a number of other folks internally about, hey, you know, wh- what do you think? Do, but you, you know, wh- where where are the gaps? Talk with our head of sales, like, hey, where where do you see gaps in the business? Yeah. Do you think I could fill any of these gaps? And I started then to reconcile parts of my notes, and uh, really in a way create, again, the continuous conversation with, with our CEO at the time around like, okay, what, what would this all look like? And, you know, also you kind of look at like, okay, what, what are the risks with changes like this, right? Are there risks? Are there, you know, are we willing to, to hedge and uh, take on some of those risks as like known knowns? So we can still kind of, you know, manage through in order to create better outcomes. But, you know, for, for me, it's always been a, uh, you know, drive the conversation. It's a far better position to be in than being driven. Uh, there, there's there's no doubt about that. And you may not always get the answer you like. And I think I, I've had that scenario in my past where put my hat in the ring, lobby really hard, on told no, and I'm really upset about it. And I learned through <laughs> reflecting back a little older and wiser. It's like, ah, that was a good learning moment. I'm glad he told me no. Like I was not ready.
1: Yeah, it's a nice mix of experience, but also putting yourself out there, right? To know that you're not ready for that level is important too. For sure. For sure. And at the time, I
0: didn't know I wasn't ready. I was convinced I was, but my boss at the time was like, no, you're not. And here's why. And I didn't like the answers, but you know, it was, it was exactly the right thing to do at the time.
1: I was talking with my wife the other day and I love America. I love freedom, but I had a couple conversations with some scientists and they explained to me your prefrontal cortex and how it doesn't even fully develop until your late twenties. And so I was telling my wife, I said, you know, I'm pro freedom. I I like being able to do (laughs) things, but we have these humans that are out driving around these multi thousand pound (laughs) devices at, you know, 50 plus miles an hour. And they don't have the physical appendage to make good decisions it's not growing on them yet. They like if it were an arm, you could see that they didn't have their arm yet. But yet we let them do all of these things. I was like, We should just raise the age of like everything to twenty five. Twenty five. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's that's better than we are now. So <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you, Joel. I've got a fifteen year old
0: son that's starting to ask about driver's ed and it's Ooh. freaking us out because love him to death, but I'm I don't know. Is he ready to have that kind of judgment decisioning on a on a split second notice and behind a you know 4,000 pound car. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know whether we were either when we got into driver's head and got (laughs) a driver's license in 16. We definitely weren't. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's wild to think about that. It's like, everything should be raised to 25. And then would we actually be in a better place overall?
1: Yeah. Well, the AI will take care of that shortly. GPT will be driving us all around. GPT is
0: already said, I was joking with just another part of my leadership team earlier, just before this call. And I was half-joking about this notion of, like, I'm going to start a LinkedIn thread or some kind of thread about, you know, forget DevOps, forget Dev, it's all about now it's GPT Ops, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's all that I, I joke, like, yeah, we could tell a story where, you know, global staffing in our world went from 350 down to, like, six. Is that a good thing? Is that not a good thing? Don't know yet. But, um, yeah, GPT seems to be like the no, the new hyped-up answer to everything.
1: It is. And while... It's not the answer to everything. I think as far as all the things that have come across as hype to our general population of humans, this is delivering, I think, the best.
0: <laughs> it seems like it's always interesting with, with these new technologies as they show up and kind of watching like how they show up and how they like manifest in like real life for us. And, you know, as like the engineer in me, mean, typically I look at something, and I'll always be like, um, you know, okay, what, what immediate tasks at my fingertips could this thing solve for me? Right, what what is it that I'm gonna like not have to worry about in terms of this? And it'd be interesting to see, like with with GPT dash, you know, name your version as it mm-hmm. grows. How does that show up in in just like everyday? Maybe um, if it does, in like parts of my everyday life that the users or you know, humans may not know it readily.
1: Have you, you seen know? GitHub Copilot? Oh yeah, that's nuts.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's it's it is it is wild to sit there and think about it. And now it's like you start thinking, about, oh, okay, well, all that boilerplate stuff can just be taken care of. And you can take all these other brilliant creative minds, right, and have them refocus on parts of the creative solutions and solving, you know, harder things that, you know, most uh, you know, software programmers, designers, whatnot, should really probably be spending their time on anyways. It's like, is this like the, the next wave of acceleration for us to see like that much more innovation out there versus maybe like the doomsday scenario of like, Oh my God, it's going to take away a whole bunch of jobs.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's since the beginning of time, I, I always yeah. find it odd that people are surprised by this notion since it's what's happened since day one with humans. <laughs> <I> know, <laughs> that's what right? we do. Is, we consolidate isn't that our jobs. Yeah. That's literally our job. Optimize.
0: Yeah. We, we find new ways to survive. We, we adapt better than
1: anything else out there. Right. Why do you think when I have private conversations off the podcast with people that run engineering firms okay. that you know Copilot's been out for a year plus I'm sure there's alternatives and variations but I was finding sub 15% of their engineers are utilizing any sort of AI code completion concepts at all. Why do you think the adoption rate is at you know let's just say for the sake of this conversation it's at 15%? Sure. Sure. Why isn't it at 75%?
0: Uh, that's a really good question, Joel. I, I could tell you, like, my, I have like a corporate perspective to it, and there's like a personal one. I think from a corporate side, I think there's a challenge in the notion of like data privacy and especially like IP protection and things like that. It's like, how do you protect from this other thing sitting somewhere else? Now, starting to get a little more deeply involved in the things that I'm producing, right? in a very intentional manner. Right? I think that is a challenge area for companies to reconcile and figure out. Like, you know, we talk internally, like you got copilot, you have now you have chat GPT. It's like there are companies that have restricted access and usage all in on on, you know, the chat GPT beta because they don't want anybody copying and pasting company secrets over there and now all of a sudden it's out somewhere else that you don't have control over. Right. And I think uh, with a product like Copilot, it is absolutely magical at the end of the day. But that in itself, given that's it's a little bit of a black box that way, it probably creates a little bit of a of a steeper adoption curve from a trust factor, right? And I think as an individual, this is what I do. Now there's another thing doing it. It's going to take some time for me to get comfortable in letting someone else in, so to speak. This kind of happened. It's almost there's an analogy back in the industry, go back 20 years, maybe not exactly 20 years, but close to that where extreme programming came on the scene. And then there was the pair programming concept, right? And I think that was like the the beginnings of, you know, development and software programming starting to become more and more of a team activity, a highly collaborative social team activity, um, because now you're letting someone else into your mix. And you had to always start to become okay with not knowing the answer readily, not understanding how to, get something done readily and allowing someone else in to participate and you know quote unquote, collaborate that in itself that had a certain steep curve to get over and probably i don't know what the industry numbers were for adoption i know a lot of us back in the day trialed and failed with it tried tried and succeed partially with that but i think there's a there's a human vulnerability aspect of that of like i can't let the snake take my job and it's still early days with Copilot, I think,
1: um, but but yeah. I'm a dive head first person. I'm like, if it's going to, and here's why, early in my career, I built software that made specifically like a, a department within a company more efficient. So uh-huh. I'd go in, we'd install it, there'd be 20 people, we'd leave, there'd be two. The two people yeah. that stayed yep. were the two people who were curious about what we were doing there and learned to operate the software. And then they were the only ones who knew how to do it. And they only really needed two people to do it. So I figured for me to stay relevant, I have to just dive head, head first into it and learn to use it. Embrace it. Yeah. I mean, it, I
0: mean, it, it, um, there's, there's definitely, and I talked to a lot of colleagues and and other friends around, I mean, there's, there's no doubt a ton of just sheer intellectual curiosity around it about what Copilot does and what the next product like it does, so on and so forth. And it's a matter of, uh, I think just getting over this hump that, you know, it's, it's going to be fine we just don't know what that looks like just yet all in because like how do you how do you constrain and bound it right how do you start to well, this is what i want to talk in? about yeah. yeah so
1: i've been looking you know my background is software engineering did it solid yep. 17 years i haven't really been doing it much at all the past four or five years since the podcast but
0: it's so different now i don't even know how to get started it is it. very I mean, different it's, it's wild <laughs> it's like wait what do you mean my intellij doesn't just show up and now it's like i got I have all these moving parts and everything it's it's crazy tough. It is
1: absolutely bonkers. And it's crazy how fast it changed. I mean, it's really only been four or five years, and I saw some oh, with videos the other day. 100 percent But what I what I'm searching for and what's not immediately obvious to me is exactly what you were describing. So I have GPT, right? I love I'm the I'm a premium member with OpenAI. Well, I'm working on a fiction book, right? Just for my own personal side project creativity outlet deal. Well I def- I want GPT to help me with the book but I don't want to introduce my stories and characters into GPT cuz they can mm-hmm. share knowledge it. it learns yeah, yeah, all- yeah so I was trying to find like how do I get a chat GPT that's like lo- running locally like how do right. I get one that's isolated so I can feed it information? How can I have se- several different, you know, clean rooms or sandboxes where I have different variations of these GPTs and they're not relaying any information back to some central server? It's just sure. mine, completely air-gapped essentially. I can't I don't know if I don't know how to ask the right questions if anybody's listening and, and knows send me a LinkedIn message please, but I cannot for the life of me figure out how to do this, Tim.
0: I'm I'm with you. Uh, I did see a recent post, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if it was an engineer from Meta or some other company. I'm going to find it and dig it up. But the headline was basically, I can't remember if it was he or she showcased that you can run a local install of GPT on like kind of a standard off-the-shelf MacBook Pro Mm. laptop without all the big compute. Now, how effective that was and everything, I don't know. I didn't read up on the details. But just from the headline, it got me also peaking interest of like oh okay well that there's a way to do it um yeah in fact internally um we have a small data research and science team that is um right now experimenting uh with starting to host our own gpt based models oh and i don't know the details yet because actually right now we have our we have a two weeks a year we take time off the clock as a company and do do our own internal hack week Mm -hmm. it's really a week of get in flow, go make something better, and uh, have fun with it. And, and so we've got a squad of folks that have teamed up to do something, and they're going to unveil it next Monday, but something with GPT with respect to our own internal data set. And they know that the rules of the game is we are not exporting our own internal data set. So um, I'm intrigued to see how they solve that. So if I, can, if I figure that out, I'll, I'll shoot it your way.
1: Well, yeah, and I'm lazy, Tim. You know, I'm not oh, I'm, trying to I'm download repos and compile things. I'm tired, things. Joel.
0: I'm tired. I got day job. I got night job with family and kids just like you. I'm tired. I want I'd... it to
1: be Apple-like oh, beautiful. I need a click. <laughs> yeah. I need a click. <laughs> I want to click, click. Maybe that's free it. trial, maybe 20 bucks a month. <laughs> and then I want my little space with my GPT that's equally as beautiful as totally. OpenAI's version. And I just want to be able to interact with it. Look at this. These are like performance grass. I don't want none of that, Josh. No. <laughs> Josh I, is showing I, us I don't know how to read that. I don't yeah. know how to, I'm, I'm sure it's good. I don't know how to read that. It's too no. complex. No. I want the button. Um, so when you... I want the f- button. If you find it in the future or if you decide to build it and want to work on we need it, a let magic me know. Button. We, we need a magic solve it all button. I just want That's a magic it. button that has a isolated GPT instance that, that I have full control over without me exactly. having to do any other work. <laughs> and I want it to be fast and I want it to be better than open AIs and I want it to be... You're not asking for much, Joel. You're, you're not asking for much at all. I'm not. I'm not. No. no I'm <laughs> not at all. It's, it's all good. It's totally plausible. When you were talking about filling the gap, right, as you progress in your career, Hello. filling the gap, I've learned this through my entrepreneurial journeys because it's out of necessity. I've also noticed that it's it's rare. Most people yeah. want to stay in their lane. I'd say sure. if you have to do the 80-20, 80% are just stay in my lane, get the task done, Rinse and repeat. Yep, move on. Yeah, Why yeah. is it that the fill in the gap trait is so rare? I think what tends to happen is, you know,
0: as, as folks that, you know, maybe work closely together as a, as a team or extend a team, there is a natural tendency to not want to maybe show something up. So if there's a gap, how do you call it out in an effective way such that you can actually participate and do that without putting someone else, some of the group of people on the defensive? Also, having you know, kind of like your own self confidence and courage to say, "I could do that," I could figure out how to do that, right? That, that I think those factors come into play, and it's it's very daunting to say. Let's say if you're a you grew up in a technical career and you see a business gap, can you fill that gap? Well, I don't know. It's kind of like one way to find out. Could you at least start a conversation that might be a catalyst for someone else filling the gap? Well, hey, that's a good way to you know broaden your scope of influence, right? I think that's really what it comes down to. You may not always have to be the one that's doing the work, but if you were to think of like a scope of influence as like concentric circles over one's career, you, know, you just come out of school, you start, and you're starting to code like maybe the two of us started our careers, and your, your real focus area, your scope of influence is like around you. What can I learn? What can I deliver? What can I build? You know, so on and so forth. Then over time, you start to say, oh, I could probably influence my team because now I carry some cloud, got some experience, some time in the seat. Then that team becomes a group of teams and then it becomes at the org level and then the company level right and so i think you start to build up like your your almost like your internal self-confidence around how to approach those things and um again sometimes it just needs to start with like asking the right question in the right setting i'm a i think i'm a naturally very very curious person just very intellectually curious i tend to ask a lot of questions read up on a lot of things I might be sometimes too quick to form my own opinions that are just ill-informed. And then I, ideally I, I bring that out and others know me well enough to slap me around and help me become more well-informed, right? Course corrector like reinforce initial opinions. But um, I, I think it's it, it can feel daunting. I mean, what one thing we try to do like internally at PagerDuty with a lot of our folks is we try and create a lot of mobility for individuals to, to broaden out their experience set. Right. And one thing we, we try and um orient people towards, like for example, you take two traditional roles in, in a company that's building products. You have a product manager and an engineering manager. You know, wouldn't it be magical if those two roles with those two individuals were fully interchangeable? So on a given day of the week, the engine manager could speak on behalf of the product manager, or vice versa, because they're so intricately connected and they actually understand each other's worlds well enough that they can step in for each other. And again, they've now just broadened out parts of their acumen and aptitude, but then also their scope of influence over time. You know, like I'm a big fan of like, find another job to do in the organization that nobody's doing or that needs to get done, and convince your manager that that that's important for you as you want to develop your career, right? It's a career journey, not not necessarily just the job at hand, that one company or in that one role, right? It's a journey. So it's over a longer period of time. But I think those two factors I stated earlier typically come into play and it's it's hard. Sometimes people need a little bit of just a nudge from from an awesome manager that can see something in them and say, I'm not going to solve this for you. But I'm going I'm to nudge you to put you in that c- scenario. I'm going to help you, but I'm going to nudge you and I'm going to walk away. I'm going to pick you up when you fall down, right? And I think there maybe isn't enough of that always around to have that, but someone's got to start the conversation still. I do think that that's on the individual versus the quote-unquote manager.
1: When you're talking about, you know, The two parts, how to, you know, call out the gap without offending people or causing sort of some other disruption. And then you also mentioned self-confidence and courage. I think the first one's pretty easy to learn tactically. Uh, the second one I think would be a lot harder because it requires a lot of work on yourself over a period of time. How do you get started building self-confidence and building courage?
0: That's another good question, Joel. You're really good at this, man. Um, I think how to go out building that up, one is I think being able to to literally, I think um, I'm a big fan of writing things down, so I can give you like what what I've done, right? And I think it's worked well for me. Writing things down, creating like, you know, internally at Bayj, we talk a lot about like, create your brag sheet. Like be proud of the work that you do. It's okay. Like really, really look yourself in the mirror, Write, write down your accomplishments, whether it's for the week, for the month, be proud of the work that you're doing, right? And, and again, if you write it down, it's a good exercise because it really kind of forces you to really kind of engage with what you're writing, right? So don't go off to chat GPT for this stuff. Focus on yourself, write it down yourself. Then you can actually leverage that and use that in, be able to facilitate conversation like with your, with your manager. And there'll be moments where there may not be alignment and you have to agree to disagree on like, oh, I thought that was really good work. No, that wasn't good work. Here's why. Here's what happened. Here's what others, here's how there. And there may be a different perspective. That's a constant, continuous learning exercise over, P call it decades, right, of a career. I think as you, as I built that up for myself, it helped me actually almost become like a bit of an advocate in that regard without showing up as, ideally without showing up as arrogant or as closed off, right, or too narcissistic, right? And think if you're able to actually almost like create like your own portfolio over time right you have things to pull from to say well actually you know here's here's what I thought I did really well you know and then if there's no strong objections to what is really getting in your way and you get a, a good amount of support then all of a sudden you start to learn how to drive yourself but it's it's not a one and done kind of thing because there are going to be those moments where you thought it was awesome and you walked away and you're like that was amazing and yet you left the room full of people like wait what the hell just happened so I think that's what's worked well for me over time. Um, I wasn't always good at it because in my early days, I know I was absolutely arrogant to a point where I, I got feedback saying, like, you always look like you have a chip on your shoulder. What are you trying mm-hmm. to prove? And it's like, you know, early days of management, I, I thought getting into management meant you had to have all the right answers. And you were the only one to do that. It's like, yeah, complete opposite. Right. You're only as, as good as your, as, as, your, as your people are and how well you empower and enable your people and support your people. So even like where I'm at in my career, it's all a testament to like my team. My team helps me get to this point, affords me the opportunity to spend time a certain way to help the company. And ideally then, you know, how do I then kind of keep that continuous cycle going with, with everyone, you know, um, around me?
1: Yeah, that seems to be a theme. Well, let's talk about the, the arrogant thing. You've said a couple of times in the conversation and and from my personal experience, I believe this to be true you have to, let's start with something everyone can agree with as the example, burnout. Okay. You have to actually burn out to know what burnout is, to know when it's coming, to feel it, and then to know how far to back up before you hit it. I think the same thing is true with arrogance and several other aspects of, of yourself, because to your point, like, me too. When I I was definitely far more cocky when I just sold some software at 18, and then I realized that that's a very ineffective way to right. engage with others because people don't want to work with that guy. They want to work with somebody who's you know humble, outcome driven, trying to get the team to sure to the destination. Sure, sure. Right. So that that seems to just be be a theme. But I did want to know when you're writing things down, do you have a preferred uh, like technology, like an Evernote? Are you a paper guy? How do I'm, a, you take I'm, f- a, I'm a Google Docs
0: um, oh, okay. person. Um, I'm
1: also pen
0: on paper when, so kind of Google Docs in my own time, pen on paper in meetings. So I still have like a notebook that I, I, I just have my own shorthand writing style that helps me just process information. Um, I can't, in a meeting, I can't take um, uh, notes on Google Docs. But what I do enjoy doing is kind of like reflecting by myself in the low time, put headphones on, put some music on and, you know, do my thing, so to speak. Um, But I I do like the pen on paper approach.
1: I don't use the computer in meetings. I don't know it's a weird animal-human thing, but it always feels like if you're taking notes on the computer that you're not paying attention, that's how I feel when I'm speaking and I see someone taking notes on the computer, I feel like they're it's not like you're paying disengaged.
0: attention. It's like you're disengaged. There's like an engagement fact. It's like, look me in the eyes. Like, as I'm talking to you, let's look in the eyes and see what's happening, right? So to speak, there's like a a, a human aspect to that. And, you know, I think with pandemic and everybody being distributed, now you get in person. You know, I'm I'm like, uh, they're really, really just like, like, that's where I feel like I thrive the most and, and get really good energy that way versus as you're talking, I keep staring at my thing. And the other person doesn't know, are you slacking? Are you doing this? What are you doing, Mike?
1: I'm, I'm playing like, solitaire in between yeah, my that's questions. Cool. Yeah.
0: Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's let's have a conversation. Let's break some bread. Can we get back to this breaking bread and hanging out? Because if you were outside in a little more of a social setting, hopefully you're not taking notes and then you know whipping out your phone. One of my biggest pet peeves is, it sits down in a, in a physical meeting, you got the laptop on the thing, you put your phone
1: next to it. It's like, really? Like, really? Do we, do we need to do that? Tim, I got all my screens, man. Come on. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm very important, Joel. <laughs> I don't know if you knew. I'm a CTO, so I'm very important. I got to have all the screens out. You
1: can tell by the um, Apple Watch. That's screen three. It, <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so good. But you know, I think a lot, a lot come down to some of the really point you're raising, like this notion of like being close to a thing, like, like like having empathy through shared experiences is is what this is all about right and um knowing that it's kind of like the old ad is like I'd never ask you to do something I wouldn't do myself type of scenario like like that has to be really hard felt that has to be genuine that has to be demonstrated and seen to build that that trust bridge over time but you know knowing what burnout feels like knowing what giving someone bad news looks like and feels like what giving someone critical feedback to help them, even though it's not going to be popular or very, um, or very positive, so to speak, right? Going through that, um, telling a customer something that they don't want to hear, but it's the right thing to do, regardless. Going through that, yep. Just all these shared experiences and knowing how hard it is to do that next job. You know, there, there's, I think, a challenge sometimes is you might get so good at your role in your job, and then you just have these. Presupposed assumptions that maybe the other person, the other department, just because you see a splice of their day in that moment, you have no idea what the rest of their job is or what their craft and their and their organization is dealing with, and yet you just assume. So coming in with like assumptions and that con- lack of context, that's where that's where walls get built versus bridges, right? Versus asking like curiously, like, okay, well, what are you struggling with? What's the biggest obstacle you're facing? Right, just lean in, right? Own the part to lean in to collaborate, and then partner up, and then you better outcomes
1: happen. I used to think that the quality of someone's website design was equal to revenue, and then I'd see (laughs) these old companies, and I'd say they make how many hundreds of millions of dollars, but their website sucks. (laughs) Look at
0: enterprise software today. I, I sit in enterprise software hell at times, and I'm I marvel at the market cap of some companies, not to be named here, and just the. The the lack of anything cohesive happening at parts of their experience and yet they're generating billions of dollars of revenue a year.
1: Well, that sh- that is a good lesson and it's one that I learned very quickly and it's how to understand how you sit in the market and what yeah. what am I doing for you, Tim, that is so useful you're willing to open up your wallet and hand me some money. Because exactly. when you understand over what over. that thing is. Like you guys yeah. started as a um Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the first time I heard about you several years ago, yep. it was an article discussing how cool it was that this company took a feature that existed in many different softwares and extracted it out into its own thing and then did it really well. Was that you guys? I don't think that's terribly far off. I'd say there is, there's there's like
0: an and part to that, which is, and we took what many companies were doing fairly manually and said that's not a problem you should deal with so for example the classic say it still happens in in all sorts of companies that in customers that we that we partner with is this roster of people seems simple who are they what's their email address how do i contact them right and then are they available do they have the right context do they understand what's going on just assembling that kind of like knowledge management in a working system is you know very um manual. There are, you know, either uh, papers and binders in some companies that, that, that have this. Who knows when it's been updated and whatnot. There are internal, um, you know, intranet or wiki pages that might have a thing with some, some links to click to get to the person type of thing. Maybe you've got an internal company directory that you sift through and hope that you remember the team name that they're on to go find them, so on and so forth. But if part of your software and or services are burning due to an issue... You don't have time for that. So the real thesis originally with PagerDuty had a lot to do with like, let's elevate that on-call management, you know, out from like, uh, imagine the visual of like the underlings of the basement level work, like to private time and really enable technologies the way the likes of like, you know, getting GitHub or even, you know, lasting and Jira did where it just creates some, some first-class experiences so the job doesn't have, that part of the job doesn't have to be that hard. And that's now, in a way, evolved from being like that that single product offering. So do that one thing really well. I mean, the the, the founders of Pagerie were, I think, absolutely brilliant in finding some really, really amazing product market fit very early. And then it was like off to the races. Now we're in year 14 of the company. And um, we've now evolved into a fairly integrated platform offering with a suite of product offerings that helps solve very real problems very readily um, for uh, essentially now we're broadening up to be able to go um, far beyond just dev and ops or IT ops into uh, a wide spectrum of parts of the business.
1: I read about the refrigerators too.
0: We've got refrigerators pretty much if something can speak over the wire over HTTPS it can integrate into Duty. We've got refrigerators being monitored from you know food services we have uh, we have all kinds of, um, nonprofits that use us for some, some really legit, like mission critical. So it's one of the best ones we have is it's one of the best stories to tell real quick is we have a company called Sightlife and what they do is they harvest corneas and transplant. And so when, when a cornea is available, right, they have literally less than 48 hours to harvest transplant and reattach to recipient to give themselves a fighting chance. So when that coordinate becomes available. They what they do is they fire up workflow inside PagerDuty to bring a number of disparate people together into like a single context to now be able to get some really important work done. And then the 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 workflow now helps these individuals hand off and get work done over a certain period of time. And then ultimately, when it's done and it's successful, they then close that that workflow out. And you know that and it's again you have to think about like mission critical like our service pretty much always has to be on, like say we are basically the dial tone and uh, we don't have the affordance of downtime or hiccups and things like that. So uh, it becomes a really interesting problem to solve when you're building stuff on things you don't control like the cloud.
1: Does that express itself in your organization different than companies who maybe don't have the need for that high of, uh, it's not life-threatening, you know, my CRM system's not life-threatening, you Mm -hmm. know.
0: No, it's, uh, there's, there's definitely like this business criticality, um, that I like to think that we have really fostered like the ethos in terms of like, like why is our customer at the center, right? It's because they're depending on us. And we take, uh, we take like that responsibility very, very seriously, almost to the heart in terms of, um, uh, how we approach things. So I think our org structure and even our execution structure does resemble that in that we are big believers in, um, you don't share accountability, you can share responsibility. So when you think about like the the DevOps movement and and things like that, um, being able to really like own your own destiny across a large number of disparate yet still interconnected teams really affords the ability to basically, you know, deliver the way we need to deliver for our customers versus having to go through a very convoluted set of pathways and structures and approvals and this and that across a bunch of teams I like to think we are we're pretty fluid environment internally to help
1: make that happen and are you mostly in person or remote how does that work
0: no we are uh we're we're very fairly distributed I think um you know over the and once pandemic hit we were much like many companies you know hiring talent in whole slew of new cities and states in, in the United States um predominantly um we do have six global offices. Um, our Lisbon office, which is our newest um, kind of center of gravity, that is uh, majority co-located by design. Uh, right now, we are fairly distributed, and it's one of those big talks across the industry. You're like, well, what do you do? Do You come back to the office? Well, how can you if seventy? Let's say pick a number seventy five percent of the people don't live within driving distance, right? Then how do you get intentional about creating some of those? So what we've been talking a lot about internally is around in office is one concept, but what about in-person let's focus on the in-person create that fabric. Cause we do have centers of gravity in certain pockets of major metros across the United States and even parts of Canada. So how do we create and facilitate for our people, just healthy in-person connectivity, right? Just to either build from scratch or rebuild and, and refresh some of that social fabric that you want to have that we all know just creates better teams, better organization, better companies, better outcomes. Um, but you know, one thing I, I talked to a lot of folks around, I was like, that's fine. But if you're brand new to a career or a role and, and you're showing up virtually and you're still, you're brand new, you might be 22 years old, right out of school, and you're still living at home. So you're sharing a room in, in mom's and dad's house, right? How do you actually you now start to learn and develop? Right, in that virtual setting versus being in the office, because your manager's virtual, your senior maybe mentors of coaches are also virtual, right? They're not, let's say in the office. so if even if you show up to the office because you want to or need to, is your support system there? you know that, that's one thing that I think is very top mind. It's like how do we actually help develop and grow you know the, the the younger or brand new talent in a given role in this new kind of situation we find ourselves in?
1: What do you think is going to happen long term? Do you think there will be companies that just that's their culture, or do you think everybody ends up going remote?
0: I think the bigger companies will be able to have a bit more leverage in saying, "Yep, you know, in offices the way the way it used to be." The reason I say that is because they just have a a like a denominator of uh, of number of people that's bigger than a lot of the average companies or smaller companies um, to be able to have that. And my guess is, and kind of. Just seeing the data and talking around is um they still have a strong concentration of folks in or near an office who just you know are in a different lifestyle piece right now where it's like okay maybe it's not an everyday thing come back else five days a week but maybe it's three days a week and you know i'm a big believer that you know as we move forward is like how will the office of experience create a vastly different experience than while i'm at home because it really should in my opinion so i think the bigger companies will, will Dictate that, and then people will have choices. I mean, that is part of the reality. Even with like, you hear that a lot of the big tech layoffs, right? There are still jobs. There's still hot demand for all kinds of roles and jobs. It's like just the the talent is now starting to shift out of very big tech, and starting to have an opportunity to be distributed across a lot of different industries that didn't always have that access to the
1: same talent. Well, that's one of the positives that when I see all the negative on LinkedIn news and such, I'm like, well, you know what? Yes, they overhired, but I also have been talking to these people for the past six years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And what I've seen is they'll struggle with talent to the point where they're working with local economic development centers. Yes, They're building programs where they're paying people to go through them. They're doing everything they can to educate an entire yes. generation. And so I'm like, look, they did all of that. They essentially said, hey, you breathe and you like tech. Okay, here's 50, <laughs> 50 grand a year. Come play at our Absolutely. You know, office. And so now it's just a, you know, There's a couple things, but the free money, but also those kids on TikTok that were taking videos of their days. Did you, did you see any of those videos? It's like, did they actually work? No, the answer was maybe not. It's like, wow. like 20 minutes of work
0: the whole day. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's, it's it's a little wild. Um, I don't like, do you, do you hear something different than kind of what I talked about in terms of like, where, where do we think we're going to end up?
1: No, I haven't asked that question a whole lot. I mean, in my head, I very much see like, it's a, well, well, how long is the time yeah. frame? Because yeah, eventually yeah, yeah. we probably all end up in computers, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uploaded into something, right? But on the in-between, where are we? I liked your vision. I hadn't thought about that before, where what we see when we say office in our head, when I say office in my head, for some reason I'm on the fifth floor of a big totally. building and it's yellow and there's Absolutely. cubicles that are gray. It's like you don't want to be there, right? Yep. And I've never actually been in that building like that really or worked right. there. But that's what I see. And I could imagine that if you created this beautiful space mm-hmm. that was functional based off of how your people wanted to work, that yep, yep. then people would be more inclined to go.
0: Yeah, I think so. and, and you know, a big part it's like there's a there's like the physical layout of the thing, just that visual you painted, right? Fifth floor, cubicle desk, whatnot, you know. I think a lot of these larger companies that have these big office buildings, big campuses, sprawling, whatnot part of the reality of you being in the office, putting up the air quotes, right? Is that there's no guarantee that you're actually working physically in proximity to like the teams that you are probably working with anyways. They might be in another building across the street or across the way or whatever that you still might see once a month in person. So it's almost like, okay, what, what, what are we trying to really get done here? Right? And I just think it would be, so much healthier and better for all. Let's just be very explicit and very clear on what our goals and outcomes are. When we say, you know, when it's in office, you know, at PageRagely, we're talking a lot about like in person because we are fairly distributed. So the reality is like, we're not going to bring, you know, 35% of our workforce and our team members into our San Francisco headquarters office. We're just not because we don't have those same 35% people living in the Bay Area anymore. Right? They've dispersed or they've left and we've rehired it. Toronto, Atlanta, London, Sydney, uh, Japan, we have an office in Tokyo and then Lisbon, Portugal. So the reality is like, that's not gonna happen. It's like, what are we trying to solve with that? Beyond maybe a celebration, maybe kick off an important initiative that requires some focused collaborative time. And then now people go off and I'm gonna trust it, you're gonna go get good work done and then come back together. But um, you know these larger places, the physical layouts, they're like, well, let's let's squint a little bit at that one. Because uh, there's no guarantee person A is going to go see person B any more frequently
1: by literally being, quote unquote, in office. We found that the right balance for us, be- we were in person, be- uh-huh. we have about 20 people, so we're okay. fairly small. But we were in person in Florida before the pandemic. And then after, that was, you know, three four years ago. Yeah. We just made this decision to go fully remote. Okay. That way, it wasn't this thing in limbo of "Are we coming back right. to the office? Is is the
0: just are we stated, all going to be so zombies? What? Well, yeah, yeah. we just like
1: this is it. I'm done paying for this lease. No one's been yep. in it for a year. <laughs> Not renewing <laughs> it. Yeah, and so you know we made that decision. And what we found is you know, at first it's really easy because everybody you were in office with is there. Yeah, remote. It's just yeah. your remote version of Chloe and so on. <laughs> and then what we what we learned is that as you bring on these new people, it becomes Very important to come together in person at some rate. So what we picked for us, we go between three and four, every three or four months, depending Mm -hmm. on what's going on at the company. We all fly to one location. We have a dinner, we do a team building exercise the next morning, and then they get to hang out in the city for that weekend. And I I don't go, of course, you know, because... They need to bond amongst each other, exactly. but they, they get to do their thing, make their bad decisions, you know, all that good stuff. Yep, yep. And, and that's what we found works for us. Does it work for everybody? I don't Probably not. Do I recommend it? I don't know. You could try yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, it, it kind of comes down to, I think like, okay, what's, what's needed, right. In one's own opinions. And, you know, um, and then, you know, in terms of like, again, like, like it should, it should feel like a different experience. It needs to it needs to fill a certain gap, in my opinion, like you know, our, our team, that, you know, our CEO team, the team reports to Jennifer, our, our CEO, last 18 months, we've been together minimum once a month for like two or three days at a time. And it's focused time. It's, you know, ideally we get together, maybe it's in a particular city, it's usually around one of our offices, that'll actually naturally gravitationally pull some people to come into the office experience. But we are doing something different. We're hosting Ask Me Anythings. We're making connections. We're hosting a social happy hour. We're um, hosting a company-wide town hall from, from the location. And we're having our specific meetings to, as a team to collaborate and you know continue to build that, that internal glue and that fabric. That's not may not be required for every single team in the company.
1: No, but spoiler alert: if you get the invitation, go because the better relationships, the stronger relationships you can form. That's only going Tried to help you true. whether whether it's at PagerDuty Duty or your next thing. is life is long. You got to get those relationships with high quality people.
0: I hundred percent agree.
1: So, speaking of different experiences, you bought a yogurt shop and ran that for five years. Can you just? We, we can't we leave needed, the interview without talking we, about uh, that. We
0: developed it. It was actually okay. uh, my wife's brilliant idea at the time, uh, which was um. That's back in. 2005 or 2006 we were living in san francisco she worked uh spent decade plus in corporate advertising um was also a certified french pastry chef so we said oh cool idea start our own business some way somehow and look a lot of different concepts and ideas and settled on a gap in san francisco was a locally owned locally sourced organic yet still kind of on the artisanal tip around frozen yogurt and this is when there was a bit of a Frenzy happening in Southern California um, around frozen yogurt shops like Pink Berry and there's yeah. another one. Froyo. Called Froyo. On. Uh, Red Mango was another one. Froyo was was the thing. It, we said, well, put a little well, business plan together and whatnot, figure out how to spool some money together. Uh, we had recently just gotten married. I was literally just starting at a new startup, like like seed round A round. And uh, we thought this was going to be a fantastic idea. Yep, six months in. We, uh, realized we're having our s- we're having a baby hello and then uh, open up the store in uh, in San Francisco in the marina district had an amazing first 12-ish months parlayed that in the location number two over by Yerba Buena near the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art right next door to a Pete's coffee we're like this is fantastic. We'll take the outflow people spending you know six bucks on a latte and spend 250 on a fresh frozen yogurt and then uh 2008 hit economic tundra and everything came to a grinding halt it was it was wild as cool we developed the brand we got it out there um it was our own startup it was you know, my wife was really the brainchild of it i was like the operational arm so i'd come in and close the shop at night <laughs> and, and make my rounds between shops and whatnot um but it was really all her that that made it happen we were on to something because you know frozen yogurt did start to take off in San Francisco, which really wasn't a thing the way it was in other parts of California, just weather-wise, it's not as warm always, right? So, but yeah, we did that for a thing, and then really lessons learned, we probably should not maybe parlay it so fast. Um, ended up selling it off for pennies on a dollar, but we we learned a ton through that. It yeah. was it was just awesome.
1: Well, ultimately, you win. I mean, you're in, you're in much better shape than I would be if my wife were a French pastry chef. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, while, while she was in school locally, the culinary stood there in San Francisco. I was, uh, I gained a lot of weight because every night I was taste testing. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. and then I found out how much butter actually goes into a croissant. Yep. It's mind blowing, but it is delicious. And you just can't say no. Or the next pastry. And like every night was like an assortment of stuff. And it would, she'd come home late. So this is like at 11 PM, 10 PM, open some wine. Have some pastry, and that became like lifestyle for like six months. So I gained quite a bit of weight during that. It was it was awesome, but brutal.
1: Yeah, I had an up and down thing with weight, and ultimately, I decided to like weigh and measure and make my own food. And then after I developed that skill for several years, it blows my mind if I go to a restaurant maybe once a month. Ah, uh, the portions, and I'll see the portions, but then I'll also see the calories, and I'll see like this is a steak. How What How magic did you use To get that many calories In that steak Because I make that same steak At home And it's like half that Totally The butter Butter Oil butter. And butter It's yeah. all butter
0: they, They'll put a stick of butter On per, on each steak And yeah. they put it in the pan With a stick of butter Per steak right
1: And people say It tastes good I love it You know they'll eat it But if they were to have To make it themselves They'd be like No what are you doing Why they, would you put no that way. in there You would be they like you,
0: you keep staring at it Like is that real Is that really what yeah. I have to do There's no way You put like a quarter of that
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, man, this has been fantastic. I want to keep going, but I've got some other meetings coming up too. Yeah, ditto. We got to get on with our days, I guess. We made a podcast. We got it. Ship it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn LinkedIn